forever. Dog. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah. This is how a podcast starts. Justin Simeon, thanks so much for talking to me. I'm super excited to be here, man. <laughs> um, as I said, you've been on the wish list uh, for a while. I'm such a fan of your work. Uh, you have bad hair coming out on Hulu on what's the date? Uh, October 23rd. Okay. But I think I think we have a drive-in premiere on October 5th. So if you have a drive-in in your town, look for us. We might be there a little bit sooner. Oh, that's really cool. That's fun. Yeah. Um, it's a uh, it's a great movie. It's a weird movie. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> what what happened? What did, where did this movie come from? Um, I kind of want to know like the whole backstory, not just the idea, but like how did the opportunity arise to write and direct a, a horror movie like this? It really started. Um, <clears throat> it was right after Dear White People. Uh, our producer Julie. Lebdev, who financed Dear White People, she had seen a movie called The Wig, uh, which is this Korean horror movie about, you know, a possessed wig. And and it's bonkers. And it is, um, you know, Korean horror movies, and especially The Wig, they don't really function like American ones. So uh, we began talking about, like, what would an American version of this movie even be? And it was just kind of a joke conversation. And uh, I sort of laughed it off. And then I began to sort of rabbit hole and realize that like hair is a recurring um, horror motif in Korean horror movies. And there are other um, horror movies about haunted hair. <laughs> and I went sort of looking for that in America and there really wasn't much. There's Hell to Pay, which is uh, you know, yeah. about a toupee from hell. Uh, American Stories and The Simpsons actually did like a like a spoof of it um there's a couple other things but there's really not a lot and hair especially um for the black experience in america is a signifier of both um you know ambition and horror true horror uh, you know i'm not a woman and yet I, i've burned my scalp you know putting a relaxer in or putting an s curl in and you know i've had people like try to braid my hair and obviously i'm losing my hair now so you know it, e even on the mild side of it uh <laughs> there are horrifying moments in a black person's uh, relationship with their hair uh if you live you know in modern history and so um it began to actually be like a serious movie idea in my head and i realized that like it just had never dawned on me to do a horror movie before but that's weird because I love them. <laughs> but I, you know, I was always I was always into the psycho thrillers more so than say the slasher films. You know, um, like any good you know cinema lover, I love Hitchcock and Brian De Palma and you know uh, Polanski's films. Okay, we're not talking about any you know <laughs> um, personal life stuff, but. Um, I love those movies and I loved how they were able to sort of be social commentary, but also be wildly entertaining, campy, ridiculous. Um, and, and it's almost like that genre sort of relies on a filmmaker differently than other genres, mm -hmm. um, relies on a filmmaker to really pour all of their deep seated um, obsessions and fears and quirks uh, into the work. It, it it needs that kind of energy. Uh, and I don't know, it just was like, hey, Julie, what if we actually did 
a movie about a haunted weave. And I, I began to to do some research and I, 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 you know, I realized that weaves really began to sort of um, take over at least black American popular culture around 1989, which is also the year where uh, New Jack Swing, uh, which is a style of R&B and hip hop, um, begins to elevate artists that aren't Whitney Houston and aren't Michael Jackson. It becomes this like gateway for, you know, black people to become mainstream pop artists. And yet, by the end of the next decade, it would be completely taken away from black people. It would be given to Britney Spears and NSYNC and called <laughs> pop music. And just this sort of like nostalgia that we all have for like 1989, early 90s, at least black people, at least me. Um, there's something like both, again, nostalgic, but also really horrifying if you just peel back the veneer just a little bit. And, uh, and it was out of all of that obsession and thinking that this movie came. That's wild. Um, is yeah. it is a movie like this a tough sell? Outside of, you know, you've gotten to before, make a thing, people like it, you have some name recognition, people trust you, but still, like, this is a oh, weird yeah, pitch. I, I, I haven't, you know, it's taken this long to get a movie made. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's not easy to make any movie, but um, especially before Get Out, this was a, a hard sell. Uh, and we had had a script and a, maybe it wasn't a script yet, but it was at least an outline. It might have been a first draft um, mm. by the time I saw Get Out. And it was just sort of like the door finally opened in the minds of, you know, the money people that black horror is not just a sort of fringe genre, but in fact, it might be the future of the genre, period, wholesale. Mm -hmm. I think so. I think it should be. And, um, and I don't know, I think, I think after people saw how successful that film was, there was a lot of energy around financing um, bad hair. And uh, we were able to eventually get it made. I was also doing Dear White People, um, and I was just really eager to get another movie made, you know, uh, and it was incredibly difficult to do that at the same time. But uh, that's really, that's where, you know, that's, that's, that's what got us uh, sort of launched. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, this, there's something so interesting about setting this in 1989 and, and the reasons you did set it in 89. And like, there's something about the specificity of both the time and the place and like the things that these characters care about that becomes universal. And that's something that I think, like this is what good writers do, right? And I think this is why, you know, I can watch and empathize with and, and care about the characters in Bad Hair, in Dear White People, in the show, in the movie. And, you know, it may not be my experience, but there's, you present it in a way that it feels like it's my experience, you know, or it feels yeah. like I understand them. And I think that's something that a lot of, one, the money people, but maybe viewers don't understand either. It's it's almost a magic trick that, that good writers can do. And I want to mm -hmm. talk about that for a second and making these specifics universal. Um, is there thought given to like, what aspects of this era, of these this um, workplace, this time that I want to, do I want to convey? Um, or is it just, I'm writing the thing I know is true? Or is it a combination? It's a for me, it's a combination of both. And, you know, it's why I say something like, you know, black horror is the future of horror, period. Because 
You know, we just lost a, a an amazing critic, jazz, excuse me, we just lost an amazing jazz critic named Stanley Crouch. And um, I urge anybody to look him up because what he has to say is profound, but specifically what he talks a lot about is how the black experience, um, whether that is being expressed through jazz or cinema or narrative or whatever, um, it really is the quintessential American experience, even though it's sort of proposed as something separate, this sense of, you know, um, I got to get out there and make it on my own. And, you know, the rules are against me and I got to do it anyway. That American spirit, that sort of like, I'm going to make my own way, even though everything's against me is a black, is a quintessentially black American experience. And so, um, you know, as a black person making movies, it's already in me to know that the specific becomes universal because I've spent most of my life watching, you know, seeing myself through the eyes of white protagonists or, you know, fairy tale creatures. And, and yes, there have been some, and, you know, several movies about the black experience, but like I'm starting off from a standpoint of knowing that I have to speak to a few different people at once. Uh, I don't have a choice to sort of just make a movie for me and put it out there. And there, by the way, there are black filmmakers that do that and bravely have done that and whose films are incredible. Uh, but with this movie and with Dear White People, I'm trying to thread a needle between um, popular culture and something that's kind of been beneath the culture for a while. Um, I think that I think the most important thing for me is to try to be honest um, about the character. Uh, you know, the central character is Anna, and she is facing a dilemma that is universal. She wants to be something in the world that they're not, the world is not particularly looking for her <laughs> to be. I think any writer <laughs> trying to break in can relate to that scenario and feeling like, you know, okay, writing, writing is actually a perfect analogy. You know, writing is like this thing that you do from your heart and your soul and you're dealing with your trauma and your inner child and your subconscious. This is incredibly personal and lonely experience, but yet we are constantly trying to fit into what is available for us in the marketplace and be ourselves at the same time. It's actually like, it's a contradiction. We live in a contradiction. And, and so my job for Anna is to extract all of the contradictions in her life um, and make them obvious, like not have them be talked about or have Anna be like, gosh, I really could, I wish I could pay my rent. But we see her in situations that we can relate to and we get it without anyone having to tell us um, man, I, you know, God, I really wish this for her. Yeah. Uh, it's just sort of presented kind of plainly in a way that if you're a human being and you're looking at it, you, you have to feel for her because she's you. She's all of us, you know. Yeah, it's true. And, and that's such an uh, interesting way to look at the dilemma that writers face, too. I feel like we're constantly told, write something personal, write something even autobiographical. But, like, you know, we also want to sell something. And yeah. I think, like, I think, you know, any, the, the best movies, whether it's, you know, the smallest indie or it's, you know, uh, some Marvel movie have a person, the good ones have a personal aspect to it. Yeah. Um, and I want to talk about, like you mentioned, uh, thrillers and horror specifically needing a director to bring his or her or their sessions to it, the things that they are really interested in. and. I want to talk about that in regard to all your work is what are the themes? What are the ideas? What are the, what's the stuff you keep coming back to mm. that, you know, whether 
it's conscious or not, but you can't help yourself. I, I can't help but talk about identity versus self. You know, that sort of friction between the role I have to play in society, uh, in my family, in my relationships, in the world, um, versus who it is that I am or might have been if it weren't for uh, the roles I have to play. And I, and I, I always end up talking about that in some mm-hmm. way. Um, I think it's, it's, again, I think it's, it's part of the human condition, but for black people and for queer people, and I'm both, yay me, double, <laughs> double gold star. Um, you know, you kind of can't survive at all without constantly pondering <laughs> the difference between who I am and who I have to be in this yeah. moment to survive or to get a job or to, you know, not get beat up at school today or whatever it might be. Um, you sort of have that already. And uh, and so, of course, when I sit down to write and work and come from my heart, that's the, the kind of stuff that tends to come out. Um, and it comes out in really weird ways. I mean, this is a movie about a killer weave. My first movie also, you know, is a, it's, a, it's unusual in, in the sense that it's a multi-protagonist movie about college ki- black kids mm. in a supposedly post-racial version of America, like an Obama-era America, um, intru- reintroducing white people to racism, which apparently is a very evergreen idea. But this was not the sort of thing that people were looking to make a movie about in 2013, 2014. Mm. Um, and so I, I think my thing is I love talking about a thing that I know is like central to the human experience, but in a way that nobody would really expect. I think like if I weren't talking specifically about black people, black characters and black themes, which are very important to me, I would still be finding a really abstract, bizarre, outside the box way of making us see something. I, I think mm-hmm. that's the stuff that always just kind of turned me on, uh, you know, as a young person dreaming of being a filmmaker. Yeah, I remember I, I used to teach high school. Uh, this was years ago. And I remember teaching um, the kids saying like, and, and my writing partner reminds me of this because he sat in on a class one time, but he said, it was the only good thing you ever said. You had on the board, basic human truth uh, plus metaphor equals art. Mm. And I think like this is, this is something we've seen now in both of your features in the TV show. Um, and I think there's something really interesting about bad hair going on where the metaphor of horror gives us a uh, license to sort of talk about things more bluntly or to, uh, like, I think guess what I'm asking is like, how is the language different for you in attacking these same themes in putting it into a genre story? Well, horror is a little more indulgent. I would say. Mm -hmm. And from a writing standpoint, I actually think that that's important because, you know, as writers, we're always, we're we're taught, it's kind of hammered. We have to be brief. We have to, you know, come into the scene as late as possible and leave as soon as possible. And the truth is, is that the indulgences are the content in some cases, in many, and I think in any of the great cases of horror films or psychological Mm -hmm. thrillers, like it is the museum scene in Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill that has no narrative purpose of being there that makes that movie for me. And is the reason, I mean, that movie, by the way, disclaimer, incredibly problematic, especially (laughs) with where we are in the LGBTQIA conversation. But if you go back and you watch that movie and the obsession with the woman's gloves and where she left them and what painting she was looking at, I mean, that kind of indulgence actually makes the movie because, 
you know, when we're dealing with these kinds of films, we're dealing with the subconscious. Um, we're dealing with the things that frighten us that we're not mm. quite aware of yet. And if we're going to like lull an audience into that dreamlike state, uh, you have to be willing to speak the language of the subconscious. And that means you have to be willing to find a gripping and engaging way to indulge yourself, uh, but serve the story still and serve the character. Um, again, The Shining is, a, you know, everything Kubrick makes is, and I say is because present tense, incredibly experimental in a lot of ways, but um, The Shining, you know, really is following the formula of, what is this filmmaker obsessed about? What are the details that this filmmaker thinks is particularly horrifying about the story? And let's bubble those up to the surface. Um, you cannot, you cannot get to uh, Psycho and uh, you know uh, Rosemary's Baby. You can't do that without these sequences that seemingly don't really have a narrative logic. There's a different kind of logic going on, and that was one thing, especially coming from the world of comedy writing. Uh, which, you know, essentially is what Dear White People, the show is. It's kind of, it's something I had to actually like unlearn that sort of yeah. thing in my head that like says to just cut the the thing that's super indulgent. Cause some of that stuff was really actually important uh, to make the movie work. That's what I found out in it. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And that is, I mean, I think comedy and horror often get lumped together, right? They're, they're mm. these autonomic responses. Um, but there's something about the discipline of comedy uh, that you can yes. let go of for hard. That's really interesting. And I'm curious to hear a little bit more about that in your process of writing both. Yeah, so I think one of the, one of the smartest things that a writer can do is to figure out first if you, if you are a, um, oh God, I'm, I, of course I say this is the most important thing you can do and I can't <laughs> even remember the name of it. But the, you know the personality test that, that uh -huh. spit out the four letters or whatever? That's Find right. out if you're an intuitive or if you're a sensational person, <laughs> which one you lead with. And this is actually really important because comedy is an intuitive art form, meaning it is about thinking. Something is not funny unless like your brain goes, oh, you know what I mean? Like it has to sort of, it's an intellectual exercise. Uh, and there's of course emotions and you, you want to care about the characters and all that stuff. But like the job is to, is to intellectually stimulate the audience. Something like horror um, the job is actually to uh, stimulate the senses, to uh, go past the thinking mind and um, and reach the you know the heart of the viewer. And so, to, I, one thing that I had to do along this process to figure out, I knew I kind of I kind of felt that I was probably more of an intuitive than a, sen a sensational type. Uh, but finding that out is really important because you have to know when you're in which genre, you know, what to be going for. And there were so many times. Uh, in this process where I thought like, oh, I'm, I'm going about this as if it were a comedy. I'm, I'm going for the idea. I'm not going for the emotion. And, and both in the editing process of writing the script and editing the film, that was like a constant sort of thing I had to remind myself is that like, you know, I don't get to make The Shining in my second film and make this <laughs> thing that is like preposterous. But like when you think about it, holy shit, I don't get to do that. I have to make something that leaves you with plenty to think about because I think that's what's so great about the genre. But while before we get to the end and before we get to the thinking parts of it, we have to experience it. We have to be on a ride uh, with these characters and with this movie that has an emotional logic, if not, you know, an intellectual one all the time. Yeah, there's a there's a visceral response to horror to genre. Um, yeah, and I, I'd love to hear about whether it was in the writing or the editing, finding that balance and and leaning into that that sort of 
emotional state? Like, what did you find didn't work in the writing process or in the editing process or even, uh, you know, at, during directing? Yeah. Well, the hardest thing is that writing a horror movie is you really don't know what will be scary. I mean, it's it's reading horror is a very different experience than than seeing horror. And one of the one of the most annoying things about this process is that like, you know, we pretend like we're writing a book and then we sort of like translate that book into like a series of photo shoots and then we like collide like the movie making process is 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 nuts first of all um but trying to get something to read scary on the page is actually a completely different job than trying to get something to be scary when you see it so yeah. just the fact that there was such a distance even with a a script that people respond were responding to there was going to be such a distance between what was working on the page and what would work on on the screen i mean that was very daunting and and also again there were there are moments in that film particularly when anna goes to sleep and she's having these dreams or, you know, when the hair would do something where in the script, it's like the hair grabs someone's ankle and, you know, it's like, okay, cool. But that could look like a billion different things. And, uh, you know, once your sort of vision meets the, practi the practicalities of filmmaking, uh, something else emerges that I don't think most people really can ever plan for. Uh, so it, there's a lot of, there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of trying to trust the process and, and hope it works out. You know, there, there is a bit of a kind of mad science experiment element sure. going on. Um, yeah. And it feels like it must be a constant learning process for you, even though you've now directed two movies, you run this TV show, you've directed a bunch of the episodes of the TV show. I mean, it, it, there's yeah, I still, even in this film, there's like a sense of, figuring things out and that's exciting to see in, in a I, I I don't think I know how to make anything until after <laughs> I've made it you know what I mean like yeah. it really truly was not after it was not until we showed the film at Sundance where I was like oh I know how to end the movie <laughs> I mean it's oh, it's just like it's it really is <laughs> that's been my experience of it you know um and I think part of it is because I'm not just going for, I'm not just trying to nail the horror genre. Like I'm telling a story about Anna and who lives in a particular time and place. And her story is my story. And it's the story of a people. It's also the story, like, like I, to me, it's not just a horror movie. It's in a horror movie package, but it's, mm -hmm. it's a, it's a character story, um, you know, like anything else. Uh, and so, yeah. <laughs> um, does it, change things for your projects going forward? Like, how do you take what you learned on these past projects and, and start to apply them? Absolutely. I think for me, as a, as a person who's inclined to lead with the idea, the intellectual idea, it was a huge, not only lesson, but just kind of process of learning to uh, kind of change that up when I need to and to sort of lead with the feeling of a thing mm. and lead with the visceral nature of a thing or the subconscious nature of something. Um, it allowed me to sort of, I think, frankly, be a bit more of an artist um, because comedy, even my comedy, though it is, it's an art house comedy. I mean, the, the, the feature certainly is. And the, the show, I think, is a little more mainstream. Um, but uh you know, th there are strict rules there, even when you're doing something kind of art house. Like it, you have to have certain jokes. You have to have you have to have laughs. You have to do this. You have to do that. And with this, with this film, with this uh, genre uh, and other genres too, but particularly with this one, a lot of those rules really just stop 
applying if you can hook the audience anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, And then sometimes it is better to not sort of play by the rules. I, I know that when I was coming up, you know, Save the Cat was like a really big screenwriting tool and it was all about the rules and and that was actually very helpful because i needed some rules particularly for what i was writing uh with dear white people which is a multi-protagonist script that was not something i was taught how to do in film school um i I was sort of taught just to not try to do that basically um but i knew that there was a craft to it i knew that there was a formula to it so i needed some rules this process was much more about like okay now i need to learn like when not to really follow those rules. And so I did, there was a lot of reading and there was a lot of exploring different kinds of story processes and structures mm. and, and coming up with characters and getting to sort of do that while I'm also running a TV show. I mean, you're like in this tremendous like pressure cooker laboratory really of trying all of these different ways to generate story and to put things together and to say things um, and to move people. Uh, and, and I really, I don't know, I relished that experience. I, I sort of, I look back at old movies and, and I'm always like, how do they fucking do that? How do they come up with that? How did, how did someone come up with Sunset Boulevard, you know? Right. But then you remember, well, that's because these writers and directors were making like 45 movies a year, <laughs> you know? Like by the time they got to Sunset Boulevard, they were ready. And so um, for me, it's, it's, more, it's much more important to keep working mm-hmm. and to keep trying and to keep grinding than it is, at least at this stage of my career, to say, come out with a perfect thing that is, you know, a, a, a billion percent hit that makes a bunch of money. I would like to do those things. But uh, to me, it's much more important as an artist to sort of um, to really see what works and to experiment and to uh, figure out how I write. You know, mm-hmm. as opposed to how I was taught to write or how a book has told me to write. I remember years ago reading, um, I think it was Roger Ebert's review of The Last Picture Show. And it mm. said, Ugh. like, this is not just a great movie about 1969. This is the best movie of 1969 because it looks and feels like a movie that could have come out in 1969. Wow. Um, wow. And I feel like bad hair sort of has that 1989 aesthetic, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. really neat. And I'm curious just about like a co- how you accomplish that. How do you make it feel like a movie from the time while also being a contemporary movie? Yeah. I mean, I think one and wow. I mean, I love that movie, by the way. Oh, uh, right. It's so I don't even know how it works. It's so good. <laughs> it's it, that movie is like a magic trick. Um, no, but uh, that was certainly intentional. Um, I, I think I think with Dear White People, you can start to feel that like I like using kind of aesthetics and and atmosphere and sort of uh, moods that that recall different time periods at the same time to sort of put us into a dream cinema kind of world. And I thought, um, I love the way movies, especially horror movies and psychological thrillers of that time period, they use the, you know, especially at the end of the 80s, grittiness was like back in vogue. Uh, You know, grit was like a big part of the movies in the 70s and then the early 80s, it's kind of a bit about polish and, and fun and fantasy. And then we get back to the grit by the end of the 80s. And so using that grittiness as fantasy element was like a big uh, part of it for me. Having there be a constant visual juxtaposition between presentation and reality. So we mm. see these people in these colorful, beautiful outfits and costumes, but 
we also see the the dirt under the fingernails and we also see um you know the reality of 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 working in tv as a black person at that time uh you know so one of the first conversations i had with uh my dp my cinematographer uh topher osborne uh really was about film and should we shoot this on film and mm-hmm. particularly shooting it on 16 uh 16 millimeter um that became really attractive to me for a couple reasons because one you think look at someone like Aronofsky and the things that he's been able to do on that format. Uh, I, I, you have to be told sometimes that it's on. So there's no limitation as to what you can do. But there's there's some things that are actually really wonderful about it because we also wanted to do practical effects with the movie. We wanted, you know, I, I'd seen a lot of things where hair is possessed and doing things that looks really bad, especially if it's all CG based. And we wanted to have physical hair on the set and puppetry and, and, you know, stop motion and reverse camera tricks and all that stuff. I wanted matte paintings, you know, I really wanted to embrace the era and, and the, the film grain of super 16 helps kind of hide all of that. (laughs) It it really actually like looked a lot better doing these effects uh, on 60 millimeter than say doing it on, you know, like a, 17k brand new (laughs) digital camera uh and then adding grain or something uh so so that was that was a big part of it uh and and the other thing is like i'm kind of obsessed with history you know it's like black people are are completely missing from large swaths of american history and especially cinema history there were some amazing black films that came out of 1989 that i'm still now just discovering you know things like sidewalk stories um uh, by Charles Lane, which in every way is a better movie than The Artist and came out 20 years before The Artist and no one has heard of it. Wow. it never got a home release. Um, and so this sense that you had discovered something that might have existed this whole time, but you didn't know about it, that feeling is also something I wanted to <laughs> invoke with the movie because that's often how I feel when I uncover some aspect of Black history. It's like, wait, what? <laughs> this whole time? You know, that, that's, and, and I, wanted, I wanted it to have that kind of vibe too. It's like, why wasn't I told about this, you know? Uh, Love that. Yeah. Um, there's something, the, you know, you talked a little bit about the humor or your kind of humor uh, in Dear White People, but also in Bad Hair. And like, it was striking to me how your sense of humor comes through in both. Like it feels very much like <laughs> there are parameters for sure. And one, you know, one may might go a little further. The other one's more obviously a comedy, but like it feels like the same person with the same sense of humor making both of these movies. Um, and I'm curious to hear like, just what is that to you? You know, what is, what's the stuff, what's the comedy that you grew up loving? What's the stuff that you think is your influence that... It's shade. Maybe it's see easy. It. <laughs> shade. It's all it is. It's not all it is, but that is the, the center of it. I mean, and I, I, I like, funny. I mean, look, it's formed by being a black gay man. I mean, truly, in who was born in the early 80s in the South. Like, you have to have shade. You have to be able to make fun of something without the thing that you're making fun of, like, coming back to get you. And so you have to be able to comment on things without commenting on them. And that little shady 
way of relating to the horrors of reality is was a survival tactic for me. And I and, and I think for lots of people, whether you're gay or black or whatever, but particularly for gay black people, it is very difficult to get through life without shade. And so, um, you know, I think that is a little bit of my queer sensibility coming out in that, like, even when I'm writing about very serious topics, and in both cases, Dear White People and Bad Hair, I sat down to write about very serious topics. I can't help but throw shade because it's ridiculous. Like, it's absurd, you know, these systems that we have just taken for granted and just sort of accept as part of our daily life. Oh, yeah, my entire life, I'm going to be groomed to believe that the hair that grows out of my head the way it's supposed to grow makes me a bad person, makes me so that I can't get or keep a job, is something that I constantly have to tame and keep under control and keep under wraps. And that, that's an insane proposition. That's an, that's an absolutely insane proposition. But we all just accept it because, like, that's life. Well, no. <laughs> I, I can't just accept it. But I'm also, like, I, I, I don't tend to be an angry person. <laughs> so it comes out snarky and shady. Um, and I think that, like, you know, the stuff I watched always reflected that. I mean, when I, in, ni- in actual 1989... I was watching The Simpsons and In Living Color. I mean, that's all you have to know about my sense of humor is those two shows were informing my mind at that time. Oh, dear God. That's so right on. And there's something so neat about, like, the deflection of shade, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's not a direct confrontation. No. Um, And it's quite entertaining, even if you're the subject of it. (laughs) It's true. It's really true. Um, But also, I mean, at the same time, Look at Dear White People, where this is about a character who, she almost thrives on confrontation, mm-hmm. you know? Like, the, she wants to have the conversation. She wants to, like, put the things on her mind in the forefront. And is that just a function of, like, having to have plot? <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, is it all tied in together? I would say with Dear White People, it's, you know, it's character first. I think that like my my method, if there is one, and I think there's one maybe forming, um, mm. but it's always to figure out like, well, what is the thing about? And it's always about the character. It's always about like what, op, what you know, what it is that they need, what it is that they want. Um, and when do they become conscious of the tension mm. between what they want and what they need? Every story is about that. It's every story is really about the unconscious becoming conscious. If we really want to go there with it, that's what every story is about. And so um, tapping into Sam as a character who's really a person who is a, an amalgamation of probably myself and my mother and um, other, you know, women I've met and uh, other probably gay men. There's some gay male energy in her. Sure. Um, but she, you know, that is a, that's a real conundrum that a lot of people feel is that like, I, I have to constantly be in reaction to this thing called whiteness, because if I'm not, it could get me at any time and I cannot allow for any holes in the logic and, and the tyranny of that and the power of that is what I wanted to explore with Sam. And that's where it starts for me. It's like, what's the thing about? Who's it about? What, what life condition is this? about and and similarly bad hair is about that thing where like you have to make a devil's bargain um you know we all know capitalism is probably super evil when left unchecked but we all all have to participate in it it is a global religion that we are all born into that these little slips of paper actually have value uh and that you know some of us when we do one thing 
that's more valuable and we get more slips of paper than when the other, you know, that's a ridiculous, that's a completely religious bonkers fictional sure. concept that we all just agree to. Uh, we have to play the game. So what is that? If we're aware of how this thing is going to hurt us, but we have to play anyway, what do you do? That is like, that's, that's an, an that is a human story uh, since, you know, time immemorial. Um, and so I just try to, I try to tap into like the deepest part of the story, which again is always about what is the character not conscious of and, and how, how, how do the events and their actions bring something into their awareness that wasn't before. So if, if that's sort of the, and I know like there, there's often no start to the process. We're all, we're sort of circling a bunch of ideas and characters and, and maybe even scenes that we want to see, but if that's near the beginning of the process, let's let's talk about your process that's starting to yeah. take shape. Like, yeah, once you zero in on this is this is what I think this is about. What's next for you? Um, there's a lot of listening for me. You know, the subconscious is not a woo-woo new age concept. The subconscious is a documented thing that we know about the human mind uh, through psychology, which is a science. Um, and the way the subconscious works is not logical. It doesn't make any sense. And so I'm actually not a fan of being too strict in the beginning, because usually there's some part of me that is wanting to say something or is attracted to something, um, but I don't actually know what, what it's about yet. And particularly in the case of bad hair, I, I had just been collecting images from 1989. I didn't know why. Um, likewise, I, I, I have this hobby and this habit actually of making music, <laughs> even though I'm not a musician, but it always kind of sounds like New Jack Swing. And I'm just, I just do it. I've always done it since I was a kid. I, I write these little songs on my tape recorder. I do something, you know, now it's logic and a keyboard that I, can't really play, but I, I try to hum it out, you know, and it, it's just upset. That's really where it, be, it was just obsessions. I, I wanted to do a movie that took place in a corporate world for a long time. But what about I didn't know. Um, and so, like, really, it's just about for me making space for and documenting all these little quirks. And I just allow myself a lot of rabbit hole time. You know, my boyfriend can't stand this part of me because sometimes <laughs> it'll be like, you know, he'll be going to bed and it's 1 a.m. And he's like, what are you doing, Justin? And I'm like, oh, I'm watching another movie about World War II. And it doesn't, <laughs> I don't know why I'm watching that movie. I'm yeah. actually not even sure why I'm obsessed with this right now. But I, I've learned to just follow those obsessions and keep track of them because they tend to add up to something. Um, and then when I know it's a movie is usually when, you know, I have enough things about it that I'm obsessed with. There's a character or set of characters there that feels like it's working out something I need to work out. It's, it's like, it's me or it's, it's a situation that I'm familiar with or it's people I know, or there's something like very personal about the characters, but then there's something about the idea that feels like global or national, or there's like a hook or there's some, mm -hmm. you know, and I just kind of wait for those elements to come together. And then that's when I get really serious. Um, when I feel that spark of like, oh shit, my obsession with, you know, Hitler documentaries and um, cotton candy and Kool-Aid packets and Christina Aguilera have finally come together. <laughs> and I've got this hook, you know. And so then at that time, it's about reading everything I can that's like, like it, um, either strictly genre-wise or aesthetic-wise, same time period, same kind of care, whatever, mm -hmm. and watching a lot of movies and... I really try to give myself a lot of room to just be in my pajamas, you know what I mean? And just sort of let it kind of in. 
let it soak in. I, I, I'm a very intellectual person. So sometimes it's important for me to like ingest some indica mm-hmm. and get out of my head and sort of like let some of the crazier shit kind of bubble up. And then I, and then in the morning, I start to organize that. I start to organize that into scenes, into beats, into things that I think it's about. Um, and what is that thing that the character needs? But because they're so obsessed with what they want, they can't quite they can't become quite aware of what it is that's getting in their way. Um, once I get, once I got that, then I know I've got the movie or the are, show. Yeah. Are you, so are you, at what point in this process are you writing things down at all? Now, all of the time. I, and I had to really like understand that I needed to do that. I, I, I felt weird about it for a while. I'm not, a, I, I start, I have, a hundred notebooks that I've started, none of them have been finished. And that just has to be okay. Like I just, you know, uh, like right now I've become a really big fan of Apple Notes because I can just sort of write down ideas, but I can also put pictures in there. I can put trailers in there. I can put images. Mm-hmm. I, I Pinterest a lot. Um, and and when I, you know, when I want to unwind, this is very weird of me, but when I want to unwind, I, I tend to just edit footage together. I've just learned that like, I need to like put it all down someplace and I don't know and organize it later. Yeah. You know, and it doesn't really matter if it's logical or not, you know. Um, yeah, it, it has always served me to just follow those weird, quirky little obsessions. I'm obsessed with the real housewives. How does that fit <laughs> into any of this shit? I don't know. But then you see Dear White People season three, you're like, oh, okay. you know, that that's where that obsession can go. But it, um, it all goes into the machine, right? Like, it all goes, it all goes all into just the story. Fun. Yeah, and 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 it, it's important because this is, these are the things that we relate to. These are the things that make a movie feel personal to us. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, for sure. Um, and it feels like you, at a certain point, hit that critical mass, and you can start giving it shape. Um, do you tend to do uh, outlines, drafts? Like, what what does it look like when you're actually in the product? Yeah. So I um, I I, re- I have to say I really love of all of the books. I tend to go back to John Truby's Anatomy of Story the most. Um, and what I, like to, what I like about his kind of process and what I like to do too is work out the basic like dynamic inside of it, meaning what, what are the things that the main character values and, and how is the theme expressed or how is what the movie's about being said, not through the dialogue, not through you know someone coming on screen and wrapping it up for us, but like just through the clash of values. Mm. How, how does that work? And is everybody in the movie necessary, one? And is their dynamic like interesting? Like, you know, like to me, like a great ensemble picture or show is one where if you put any combination of two characters together, you can almost already hear what they're going to fight about, you know, what they're going to agree on. You can almost like their dynamic is almost self-evident. You know, you put in this girl who doesn't speak up for herself next to, you know, a character like Lena Waite's character, Brooklyn, who, you know, says way too much and, and is putting her opinions on everybody. You know exactly what that conversation, they're alive in some kind of mm-hmm. way. And so I spend a lot of time on that. I spend a lot of time on the theme what I'm trying to say. Am I, is my theme like universal? Is it specific? Is it too specific? Is it not specific? I spit, I agonize over the word choices in things like that for a very long time. Because I, because once I start doing scenes and once I start doing outlines, that stuff changes rapidly. I mean, mm-hmm. I, 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 
writing is rewriting. That is a cliche, but it is true for me. You know, I need to get something on paper so I can totally change everything. Uh, and, and so for me, I spend a lot of time just getting like the skeleton, the core, the soul of the thing right. So that as I make all of these other changes, you know, fast and furious or slow sometimes over a period of years, whatever that process is going to be, I know what it's about. I can always return to that sort of like sense memory of what this is about and who it's about, you know, mm. oh, this is about me and my mom or, you know, oh, this is about me in the workplace. You know, like I can always kind of come back to something yeah. because I know that the outside changes. When I first started writing Bad Harry, it was about it was set in the PR world, which is, you know, that was my first job. I was a, a publicist for eight years. It was set in the PR world and it was set in, 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 in modern day. Mm-hmm. And as I began to research the hair weave in 1989 and go like, oh, all of these 1989 obsessive things I've been collecting are actually about this movie now. Um, the movie is still the same movie, even though I've made some very drastic changes sure. from the first iteration of it. Sure. I mean, you did, you did the hard work. You did the core. You yeah. built the core of it to be about this thing. And the trappings can sort of change around that. And it's interesting. I think that's something yeah. a lot of, like, very often when we pitch things, that's a hard thing to convey. Like, we're yes. open. I think writers are open to notes. We're open to changing so much about what we do. It's we're trying to preserve that core thing that it's about. Yeah. Um, I'm curious to hear about, like, development and notes during Dear White People. <laughs> uh, we have yeah. plenty of time <laughs> <laughs> what do you want to know about it <laughs> well let's let's start i'm sure you've talked about this a ton but like first of all um translating that movie to tv show like that's mm-hmm. I, I mean it seems freeing in a lot of ways but were there particular challenges to that the biggest challenge for me always is just the assumption that I don't know how to do it. You know, that there's some like secret magic recipe that everyone knows that I don't know. Mm. Getting over that bullshit to me is always the job and the hardest part of the job, no matter what I'm doing. Um, and uh, the truth is, is that the writing of it to me was actually pretty obvious because I had so much left over from the movie that I didn't get to say. And I had so many characters that I didn't get to flesh out or write. And so I had plenty of material um, I had plenty of, you know, story circles and outlines and processes to try. So it was just a matter of really getting in there and just doing it, you know. Um, notes are, are really difficult. They're really difficult because what I've become to real, what, I've, what I'm realizing is that one, we're, this is all an act of therapy, writing. You know, we are literally like talking in the different character voices in our heads. I mean, I hope every writer realizes that no matter who they're <laughs> writing about or what the subject is, it's you, boo. It is like all your crazy ass people in your head talking to each other. That's what this is. That's what this whole thing is about. And uh, as we do that, you know, we're, we create these, um, we're like, we create these like projection machines. So like when I get a script, I'm going to project all my shit on top of your shit. And I'm going to read something other than what you think you wrote, no matter what it is, no matter how great it is, if it sucks, Mm -hmm. I'm going to have an experience reading it that is just very different from your experience of writing it. And uh, having to like deal with people responding to your work, not always from a conscious place, let's say. They might just be in a reaction or they, you know, or or like the voice of their boss is in their head or, you know, worrying about something else is in their head. And and the literal words of the note might seem 
what? You know, like <laughs> I, I, I mean, like so, I, every writer knows this experience where you get a note and you are just infuriated. And the note is so stupid. The note is like, does she have to have shoes? Like, it's like something like that. And, and like your whole brain is about to come apart. Like, how dare they ask me about the shoes, you know, and you're irate. And then you begin to react to that reaction. And, and all of a sudden, we don't even know what's wrong with the script. And we've gone through 55 drafts and everyone hates each other. And the movie gets made and it's horrible or it gets passed on or whatever, or it's great. I don't know. But that process is very <laughs> confusing. And so having to like what I've learned, especially with doing a TV show where you're constantly receiving feedback, you're not just receiving notes on the script, you're receiving notes on the acting choices, on the background, on the hair, on the, I mean, everyone has an opinion on a TV show and you want that. Um, but to, to understand that like, there's a difference between what is literally being said in the note, what is like emotionally being transferred by the mm -hmm. note and what it is you can do about it. Because what I've always found is even on the notes that piss me off the most, and I know I'm fucking right and fuck you and how dare you, there's always something actually that benefits the piece by taking the note seriously, always. Sure. Uh, mostly because writing is just so hard. And so whenever you have a chance to go back into it, it gets a little better each time, no matter what the excuse is. And so I'm learning to recognize that my emotional response to a note is not my response to the note. It is not the one I should write back or say to anybody always. Um, and then sometimes like when I get really defensive about something, it's probably because there's something there that I knew wasn't totally working. And this person hasn't told me what's wrong yet. But, but the fact that they're talking about this section at all tells me that something is wrong, God damn it. And I have to go back and I have to figure this shit out again. You know, it's, it's, that's what I'm really so angry about. And Absolutely. so, uh, you know, so I, I, to me, notes is like a very, it can be a very Zen process if one accepts, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, the emotional horror of it. <laughs> and, well, right. and to stop pretending like anyone is great at it. I mean, like, I don't know anybody that like, every, we all smile. We all say, thank you. Oh my God, thank you so much. I'm going to work <laughs> on that. We all practice that voice and that thing. But there's nobody that receives feedback and just feels good. No, no one wants <laughs> to hear it. No, I mean the the exception is, and it's rare though. When you're when you are in the presence of of an artist or a writer or somebody who deeply gets the craft, mm -hmm. and you feel that they understand your intention, mm -hmm. and they can outline for you how your execution of that intention didn't maybe match up for them the way you thought it would. Those notes are gorgeous to receive. Those notes are like, oh, thank you. I knew something was weird about the opening. You know, those notes yeah. are like, oh, those are a relief, to, but they're just rare. You're just, yeah. you're mostly not going to get those kinds of quality notes. You have to do the work of like, what's the jewel in this for me? Yeah. Well, and I think getting those kind of notes are more frequent in a writer's room, right? You're among yeah. your peers and you're all sometimes. Sort of well, this was my question, <laughs> so... Depends on who's running that room and, yeah. and what the forces are. Because the writer's room is, I would say my writer's room, I take a lot of pride in this. My writer's room is a very creative space. Mm -hmm. But writer's rooms are not necessarily, I mean, you're making cans of soup. Let's not, we all <laughs> are obsessed about the soup recipe inside that can because we're writers and that's what gets us off. And we like seek out the quality stuff and whatever. They don't, it, does it fit in the can and can it be on the shelf in time? And will people buy it for the price that it is being sold for? Are the only questions that, you know, the people paying for this process really care about. So if, you know, if you have a showrunner that has the ability, the time, the space, the wherewithal to buffer the writers from 
we just want Kansas soup to like, what is the meaning of life? Then yes, your <laughs> writing process can be, you know, glorious and, and revelatory yeah. and wonderful. But it, 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 let's not kid ourselves. It's a job. Of course. And sometimes you do feel like you're working in a grocery store, you know, it's like, okay, well, we need 14 jokes today. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we got to move product, and that product we got to move jokes. product. We need, we need five a page. Come on, yeah. what else could be funny? You well, know, and it's yeah. <laughs> um, so so going into and and we'll start to wrap up. Um, we'll listen. We'll have to do this again sometime because I want to go deeper yeah, yeah, on yeah. all this stuff. But totally um, but going into the dear white people writers' room, yeah, like was that was a room a new experience to you and like how was it suddenly sharing your vision your baby with you know nine other people or however many it was it was it was scary i had never been in a room i had, i didn't yeah. do anything the traditional way I, I was not a pa i was not a writer's assistant i was not a staffer i didn't do i i was following all of my friends as they were doing that but i was in publicity the whole time so i, I didn't really get to do that part of it and that was a good and bad thing because the good thing was is that it had never been sh- I didn't have any idea in my mind of what it was supposed to be. So I was able to sort of take a process and make it from scratch. Mm -hmm. And I had had lots of experiences uh, telling stories in community. You know, I've been, uh, I I really understood what storytelling was uh, being a theater major at a performing arts high school in Houston called HSPVA. And so the idea of like having a creative process among a group of collaborators was not daunting to me in and of itself, but to do it in a way that made sense for TV, that was kind of scary. And so it was helpful. I had, uh, you know, my co-showrunner at the time, Yvette Lee Bowser, she created Living Single, uh, very supportive of keeping me at the head of that table and keeping it be centered on what I wanted to do, but also was not really afraid to disagree with me or, you know, have open argument about any, that was sort of normalized very early on. Um, And so, you know, for me, I actually realized like, oh God, I'm actually like a college professor in disguise because like for the first few weeks of my writer's rooms, it's just about like presenting some ideas to the team and having these really open philosophical conversations about the meaning of life and like, you know, what this genre does and what this filmmaker does. I mean, the first few weeks of of that first season, we were just watching movie clips because, um, you know, Yvette was very keen on the writers just getting into my head. And so mm-hmm. it was it was like show and tell, you know, of like, well, this is why this part of the movie looks this way and showing them Persona and Barry Lyndon and all and Metropolis and all these random movies that you wouldn't expect to have produced their white people, but actually, uh, you know, are, are very vital to the way I think it works. Um, and so that that was it. And, and then, you know, for me, I, I don't I mean, the ego is, is a tricky is a tricky thing. We all get it bruised in this process, but I don't know. For the TV show, it was really imperative for me that it not just be my voice, that mm-hmm. my voice be the parameters of the show, maybe even its spine, but that like lots of people's opinions and voices like needed to have space in that for me. And so creating an environment where anyone could speak up, uh, you know, where people handled their own rewrites, where, um, you know, uh, anyone could disagree with me or disagree with something that I thought that was really important to me. Cause I felt like everyone, if this, sh- if the show was going to feel as personal as the movie, I didn't have enough fingerprints for the amount of hours and work it took to make that show. So everyone needs to be able to put their hands in the clay and leave something there that is theirs. That was a really, really important part. And, and, and a pleasure it, that's yeah. so pleasurable to see people get to tell their stories in your show. Beautiful experience. 
Absolutely. I mean, that's the great joy of working with the room, right? Is yeah. it, it ceases to become your thing and gets to be our thing. And that's, that's yes. exciting. And, that's, and that sense of humor you talk about becomes a group sense of humor. Yeah. And, and it becomes flavored by other people's sensibilities. And you start, you know, and it shows up in the show. I mean, there's these recurring ways the characters talk and jokes and slang that like, isn't stuff we're hearing. That's just how we are talking <laughs> and dealing with stuff in the writer's room. And we think it's funny. And so here it is, you know. I love that. I mean, is there stuff that was discovered maybe in that first season, maybe down the road that like, you got to have the, oh my God, I never would have thought of that on my own moment. I mean, the one that to me is the most profound is um, probably not until season two when when we get to Coco's decision uh, about uh, pregnancy. Um, that episode came from some of the women in the room saying, Justin, we don't know if you'd want to go here with it, but like, this is a story that we're trying to tell. Mm. And I was like, I don't know shit about that. Tell me. And that produced... And everything about that episode, I think it's six in season two, but everything about that episode, because I'm not a woman, I will never be pregnant and I'll never fully know what that is. I really had to, and it was a pleasure to, to surrender to the female storytellers on my team, including the director, Karen Pierce, um, Antoinette Robertson, who played Coco, uh, and Jerry uh, Brown, who wrote the script, like really letting them sort of find it. And, not, and if something didn't work, not saying take it out, but saying it doesn't work for me and I don't know why but it doesn't work for me. What do you think? And, and that was really amazing because that's one of my favorite episodes. And I, I literally never would have come up with it. I, I wouldn't have had the, the thought process, processes as a man to have come up with that episode. Yeah, and, and it's exciting when, when you get to do that, right? Get to be a yeah. part of that. That's, oh my it's God, cool it is, it's so fulfilling. And, I, it, it, and when I hear stories about showrunners who um, you know, put their names in other people's stuff or like, um, you know, it does feel about being right more than it is about being right for the story. When I hear about this stuff, I'm like, why? There, what do you get for it? It's it's not more fun that way. It's more fun when it's collaborative and when people are surprising you and bringing things to the table that you couldn't have thought of. Like to me, that's the like, <gasps> we did something yeah. feeling that I that I love about this job. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, we need to wrap up. Uh, Bad Hair is on Hulu uh, this week as of this release. And yes. uh, if if you live near a drive-in premiere, go see it at the drive-in. It'll be super Check fun it at out. the drive-in. Um, do we know about more uh, Dear White People? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Has it been uh, announced? I'm sorry, I don't know. Oh, no, uh, I don't know. I mean, we were we were sort of paused by COVID, but we our, our first table read for the new season okay. is actually on Monday. Okay. Uh, as of the time of this recording. So by the time it comes out, we'll probably be shooting it <laughs> oh <boy. laughs> with masks on and the whole thing. So <laughs> <Good luck. laughs> we'll see how it goes. <laughs> oh, it's so strange. It's so strange. It's very strange. Uh, I just got my holding... first test. <laughs> I was going to ask. So you're holding up okay? My first pr- <laughs> I'm holding up great. I'm an introvert. I, I'm, I am so fine. I'm flourishing. <laughs> like I love, I love not having to leave my house. Every, even even my introverted friends who are just like, oh my God, I can't wait till this is over. I'm like, yeah, I me know. too. Like, I <laughs> love it. I love it. It's messed up. It's, it's, the fact that we got to do this. about that. I don't feel guilty. The fact really? that we got to do this podcast and I am still wearing the shorts that I slept in <laughs> for me is like such a fucking win. Um, I don't know how I'm gonna go back. I really don't. No, it's, uh, I'm, I, I, have not gotten to talk 
about this with anyone who is in the same boat, but <laughs> yeah, like my wife and I started a business together in March because we were home together. My right? and I have written two feature scripts. Like I'm kind of doing I, okay. <laughs> yeah. I started my podcast up. I'm like editing things. I'm writing things. I'm pitching for movies that I like. I'm, I am very like creative right now. I am calm. Uh, well, that's not always true. There's right. a lot of if shit can, going on. If but... you can take a break from the outside world of being holy a shit, I horror. love it. Yeah. I love it. You're watching movies. I <laughs> love it. Postmates love it. You know, um, cooking. It's so great. <laughs> I, I don't. I really don't know what I'm going to do when this way of life is no longer appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is so bad. This is very bad. I have no um, what idea if, what I'm going to do. We'll wrap up as we always do by asking you, and you certainly have the time. Uh, what are you? What have you watched lately that you have loved that you want to recommend to people? TV, movies? Have you read anything great? Wow. I mean, yeah, of course. Um, I mean, I guess I, I will destroy you is still something I'm unpacking, and yeah. I thought was just a really marvelous uh, show, and also just a masterclass I felt on writing, mm -hmm. uh, um, particularly characters that are quote unquote unlikable which i don't think michaela's character is but she has a lot of unlikable traits and making that you know be an addiction for the audience and mm. not a, a deterrent i thought was really really masterful and like i said i've been watching a lot of documentaries about cults and hitler um the vow on hbo is giving me everything i need and i don't know what's wrong with me but i'm <laughs> obsessed with it um and i've been watching a lot of horror 1989 uh, stuff just kind of preparing for the release of bad hair yeah um oh I, I think i said this in the podcast earlier but if you have not seen sidewalk stories yeah, seriously go find it it's on the criterion channel you'll you're gonna be so pissed off that you've never heard of this movie you're going to be pissed off it's so good <laughs> what is what's some other stuff that you've that's gotten you excited from that 89 horror watch Oh man, well I I mean it, it doesn't quite um I don't know if it counts as horror, but Charles Burnett's To Sleep with Anger um mm -hmm. is also really great and also a movie that I'm pissed that no one freaking told me about. But Danny Glover basically plays this like like he like he believes in like black ma like he's a black man, but he believes in like black magic, like black people voodoo kind of thing. Mm -hmm. He's like kind of an old school, um superstition y kind of guy. And there's something like kind of off about him like there's you get the sense of like could this be the devil we're not sure but he comes to this like very christian suburban black family and they take him in and basically everything unravels after that point it's a great movie and again something that nobody really talks about um devil in a blue dress also just randomly uh because i'm i've also been kind of rabbit holing into pulp uh, and, and black iterations of Pulp. So I've been watching a lot of like Black Caesar and Ganja <laughs> and Hess, which oh is God. a horror movie and is fantastic and yeah. nuts. You watch this stuff and you're like, what? Because the other, <laughs> thing, the other thing I'll say is that like black exploitation is sort of, when you hear black exploitation and you think of black movies in the 70s, you think of like Afro, Shut Your Mouth, Pimps, you know, like right. we all have that. But if you actually sit down and watch Black Caesar and Trouble Man and Ganja and Hess and these movies, you realize like that it was art house cinema. Mm -hmm. And and it absolutely was paving the way for something like Get Out or Bad Hair, um, you know, for decades, actually. And uh, I don't know. I, I've been really getting into that stuff. That's great. These are good recommendations. Um, Justin, thanks so much for chatting. Uh, please come yeah. back. We'll do this anytime. My pleasure. Um, this is so fun. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. 
Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.